Hadassah, and I'm so excited to welcome you to Real Woman, Real Torah, a project of Bacheva Learning Center. We're here to offer you an authentic Torah learning experience, produced for women, by women. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Zizi. I'm so looking forward to hosting this first series of the Real Women, Real Torah podcast, along with my friend Zeldi. Hi, everyone. I'm Zeldi. I'm recording here from New York, and I'm so excited to be learning together with all of you today. Thank you for joining. So I'm recording from Los Angeles, and I'm excited that we have this opportunity to learn some Tara from the sources, and more than that, an opportunity to discuss it. I'm glad I have a friend here who I can um, talk these ideas through because it just makes the learning so much more real when you have someone else to throw the ideas around with and try to seek ways to internalize it and um, make it a real part of life. Um, the So thank you, Zeldi, for being here with me and adding to our discussions. Um, for this series, we're going to be discussing the Megillah specifically, and we will be looking at it through the lens of the Altarebbe in Tyra R. So, you know, the Megillah is an exciting story. It almost has a romantic appeal as all the characters of a good fairy tale. We have a king and a queen and a palace and parties and an evil villain and our heroine who comes in and saves the day. And there's so much that can be delved into in the story of the Megillah itself we're going to be taking a bit more of an approach of trying to understand the spiritual dynamics at play and how the Megillah can be relevant to our own day-to-day -day lives. So looking forward to this journey. This episode is sponsored by Gitzi Rappaport in honor of her son Yitzi's bar mitzvah. All right. The mimer we're going to be learning is Ubevaya Lefnei HaMelech. And if you would like to go back and look at it inside, it could be found on page Tzadik Vav of Terah R. The style of Terah R in general is extremely dense. Um, every line is really packed with a lot of information. Each source represents a whole big idea. So to learn a member of Terah R really requires a lot of research and going into the sources. Um, we're not going to go so deeply into all the sources, but we're going to try to understand the flow of the mimer and the general idea that it is discussing. So the mimer starts off with the Pasuk from the Megillah, which is in Perek Tess, toward the end of the Megillah. When she came before the king, she referring to Esther, Amar Masifer, he said through letters, the Yashav Machshava Haral Reishai, that the evil decree that Haman placed upon the Jews should, I guess you could say boomerang back upon himself, should be on Haman instead of on the Jews. So Mordechai is supposed to hang on the tree, and instead Haman is going to hang on the tree. We're going to look at this Pusik and analyze it from a perspective that Esther represents the Neshama, the soul, and the king, Ahasuerus, represents Hashem. So this puzzle is representing an interaction between the Neshama and Hashem. And this is a metaphor that Hasidah shows extends 
through a lot of the Megillah is this dynamic of Esther being the soul, the Jewish people, and the Hashem being the king. Ahasuerus. All right. So, so, so Esther is so Esther is coming to the king um, with a request for a decree, basically that that um, Haman's decree should be flipped back on him, and this represents the the Jewish soul, like an interaction between the soul and Hashem. In other words, exactly. Not so much that the she's coming to him, revealing her story, asking him for help. She's showing, saying, "I'm a Jew, right? The decree is against me," because he didn't know that. And so you can say on, on some level, it's us coming to Hashem, reaching out to God for a certain level of assistance, in, at least in the story. And we're going to understand this a little bit deeper, what it means that we're coming before the king. Um, and then the king's response to us coming to him. All right. So um, in order to understand this, we're going to jump into some other ideas and hopefully come back to this at the end. So in general, over the course of a lifetime, and even after a lifetime, a Jew, both soul and body, goes through a series of elevations and descents, alias and urides. The neshama has, there are times of, you know, spiritual highs, there are times of spiritual lows. And our journey is constantly a series of growth and sometimes less growth, sometimes more growth. Um, in general, for a soul, what is growth? Growth means that it has a greater revelation of godliness. The more the neshama is exposed to godliness, the more it's able to be itself, the more it's able to um, impact the human being. And then after death, the whole the neshama obviously continues to live on. And in Gan Eden, it goes through a series of elevations and elevations and elevations, further and further and further revelations of godliness. And it gives the neshama immense pleasure. And that's why, you know, even after someone passes away, we'll do a mitzvah in the honor of that person. Because for the neshama, it results in the neshama receiving an aliyah, going higher, receiving higher levels of godly revelation. And there are like myriads of levels, like, you know, think about the fact that, you know, the neshama of, let's say, Maishra was also in the Neden. So you can imagine the level of revelation that Tzadikim are experiencing after they go up to Ganeiden. And on a body level as well, our bodies, our, our goal of our bodies is ultimately to receive an aliyah as well. That it's not just that, you know, on a physical level, in the current state of the world, what happens to the body? It's buried after life and it disintegrates. And even during life, you know, as soon as we're born and as we get older, things start breaking down. But in the ultimate, if you look at like the ultimate goal of creation, the goal is that the body too is going to come to a point of redemption and elevation. And, and they were saying that this is through, this is because of the soul's elevation that will cause the body's elevation. It's not only it's because like of the soul's thing. elevation. It's a separate thing that, that it, you might think, oh, you know, what, what receives an elevation as a result of living? Only the soul, because eventually the body dies. But from a Hasidic perspective, Gan Eden is not the end goal. The end goal is the world, to, the actual world to come, which is the world of Mashiach. When right, Mashiach which comes, body and souls. Exactly, that's a life of body and soul. And then, even higher than Mashiach, is the era of Tchias and Mesim, 
which is a whole new level of life for the body, the body is totally going to change and it becomes an immortal body. Um, and it's a whole new experience for the body. So that's sort of like the ultimate goal for the body is the world of Trias and Mesa. And these are just examples of elevations that the neshama goes through, the neshama and the body both experience. Now, the interesting thing is that between each level of elevation, we're constantly yearning to have higher and higher levels of elevation. We said elevation means revelation of godliness. Between each level of revelation, between each level of elevation, we first have to go through a series of nullification, a series of, of bithil, letting go of ourselves. Because in order to receive something new, and in order to have a new understanding of God, in order to become a new sort of body, the old body needs to be let go of. The old understanding needs to go. Because we're not talking about, you know, okay, first I learned how to count, and then I learned that one plus one is two. That's, a, that's, a pro, that's progressive information that we're learning. But when we're talking about understanding new levels of godliness, that's like a whole, it's a whole different um, it's a whole different understanding that, you know, by the time you get to high school, the stuff that you learned in elementary school, some of it actually becomes irrelevant. And if you hold on to it, it gets in the way of you being able to expand your mind and learn new things because you're holding on to a very childish understanding of something. So at a certain point, at a certain point, you have to reject that past knowledge in order to attain a greater level of knowledge that is unparalleled to what existed before. Similarly with, you know, creating something new, you can buy a piece of property and it has like an old dilapidated house on it. And you have choices of what you can do with that house. You can decide to renovate the house, but then you're working within the structure that already exists. So that means whatever you're going to build in that house is going to be extremely limited because you're working within an existing structure. The other option is to completely raise the house, destroy it, and build it from the ground up. Now you have infinite possibilities of what that house can be. Now you can have an actually new house, right? right? So similarly, for when we're talking about elevations and we're talking about immense revelations that are incomparable to what was there before, Manishama has to go through a, this experience of bittal, of letting go of its previous knowledge. So in in then there's this river, the Nahar Dinar, that the Neshama gets dipped into, and apparently it forgets all its knowledge from before. And then when we talk about the, the body example, first of all, just going through Gullus is such a crushing experience that we're able to then experience a Gaula, which is a renewal of our body, right? So like Gullus crushes the body and Gaula is, is, the, is the renewal. Gullus is the Bithel and the Gaula is the renewal. And then with Trias Mesim, it says that every person, according to some opinions, Trias Mesim is going to happen to everybody, and every person is going to briefly die in order to experience Trias Mesim. Death being like the ultimate battle for the body, right. Right. right? Returning to its source, where it came from, to the, to the earth. And then it's able to experience a true renewal in Trias Mesim. Right. In a way, it seems like a pretty, like, frightening or like painful process like that step of like having to go through that that nullification or that like that that unknown like i'm going to become something different than what i was before is really terrifying it is terrifying 
<laughs> that's right. So that that is that's the truth, right? That go, that growth is scary because of this, right? And and even it's so interesting that it's even on like a spiritual level, like that the neshama faces this same kind of like pain, so to speak, in that process of growth. Right. And there's such a strong resistance to it. That That's part of the reason there is such a strong resistance to it. Even spiritual growth. Like, I think, you know, sometimes people have spiritual goals for themselves that are lofty and they know are attainable for themselves, but they're also scared to, to go there because it's like, oh, then I'm going to become this type of person. So it's about like leaving behind a certain persona of ourselves and like, you know, image that we have of ourselves. Right. And that's that bit all, which, you know, it's, it's probably the, the biggest thing that stands in the way of us growing and painting is just that, that fear of, of letting go of what was. Right. Because sure. like, there's a certain part of us that's like, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm okay the way I am. Like, I'm right. Exactly. I like this. <laughs> yes. You know, there's more that I want. Like, I do like this. And even if I don't like it that much, I know this. Right. Right. So like, I don't necessarily even like it that much. I'm like, I see where things could be better, but it's, but it's so scary. And I like not being scared. (laughs) So, right. So back to our, back to our member. So as we were saying, so there's all of these elevations and growths. Now, there actually is a point where you can reach the pinnacle. There is a highest level in Ganita. I don't know what that is. And like we said before, like you're able to reach the pinnacle of growth and of spirituality. There's a time when growth stops. But even on that level, when a soul is in Ganita and it's receiving revelation of a chef and it's come to that highest point, which is the highest level in Ganita, that means that it's receiving an immense amount of spiritual revelation and godly revelation. Because like we said, each level is getting higher and higher. And, and it's not just like, a, it's not just a, a commensurate growth. It's like an absolute leap of growth each time. So you can imagine what an immense level of revelation is going on up there. That highest level is still only a ray of godliness. It's not God himself. Because whenever we talk about revelation, and that's what we're saying over here, but it's called the revelation, revelation hides the essence. That's the nature of revelation. So understanding just from a human perspective, we just know that like the deeper something is, the harder it is to express. So it's easier for me to express certain like external things like I'm hungry. That's an easy, that's an easy thing to express. I'm tired. That's an easy thing to express. Uh, Start going a little bit deeper. Let's say going to an emotional level starts to get a bit more difficult. (laughs) There are more external emotions that might be easier to express, but once we start getting into the deeper emotions and then even deeper than emotions, just like sense of self. Can you define yourself in words? Right. The second you try your, you're just you're cheap you're cheapening that you're cheapening that sense it. of self automatically. Right. And it like it goes hand in hand with let's say, you know, people are scared to speak in a vulnerable way, not only because it's scary to share yourself, but also because sometimes you feel like 
what I'm saying is not capturing what actually is, right? Sometimes, let's say, sometimes the words I love you sound, sound dumb. Like, what is, like, but they're just words that, are, that feel so generic to the actual experience that a person is having. Exactly. So it's not, they're not, they're not it. They're not, they can't exactly. capture what, the, what that feeling is or what that sensation is. And definitely not the depth of it. Right. So if we can imagine even just like on a very human level, one human being relating to another human being and just like that lack of ability to share the self itself, and especially not through words, right. Especially not through revelation. The greatest way we, we experience another person is by being with them, not by revealing to them, right? So if it's so difficult from human to human, let's just imagine from God to human, right? God, the all-powerful, infinite God, sharing himself with a human being who is not even, you, you can't even... Our languages aren't the same, obviously, right? So how could it be that God could express himself to us? And the answer is he can't because he set it up that way because God could do something that he chose to do it. But he set it up in a way that through expression, God can share himself with us. So even in Gan Eden, we're not experiencing God himself. We're experiencing how he's choosing to be portrayed to us. But that doesn't capture the essence. Right. And even here, we're talking about, uh, we're not even talking about a human, like, like with the limitations of a physical body, even just a soul, which is so elevated. So, oh, exactly. um, Like, has so much, so many less of those limitations than a, than a human in a physical body has. Even that soul can't grasp what God is because God is God and the soul is not. Right. And that's, that's a good distinction, right? So it's like the soul is still a created being. It's not, it's not a human, it's, it's a very spiritual creation, but it's a, but it's a creation as opposed to creator, at least on the levels of the soul that we're talking about now. So we might think hearing this information that even the highest, even the highest soul and the highest level of Ganeden is not experienced God himself. So I guess you can say the natural assumption would be that Okay, that means that accessing God himself is impossible. Because in what we think is the highest level of revelation, you can't experience him. So we must not be able to experience God himself. But we can experience God himself. Um, And the way that we can experience um, Exet, which is God's, God's essence, and not just his revelation is not what we do in the next world, but actually what we do in this world. Revelation, like we said before, comes from the part of our selves that's called malchus. Malchus is expression. Malchus, if you think about it. What is malchus means, um, I guess you could say kingship, right? A king exists because he has subjects like it's innate to the level of king is this relationship to others that he's ruling over there's no point in being a king if you don't have subjects so the whole nature of kingship is having something that you have a relationship with um and 
the level of malchus is is the level of expression because relationships work through expression, right? Whether beginning in the world of thought, even into the world of speech, and all the way into action. Action, the way I act, is also a way that I am expressing to another person, right? And expressing to the world around me. So malchus, the level of malchus is a level of expression, and. When all of these levels that we spoke about before, when a person is experiencing revelation of Hashem, that means it's coming from Malchus, it's coming from expression. But when God created the world, he created the world, it says, because Hashem desired to have a dear Hashem desired to have a home on earth. Desire is much, 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 much deeper than Malchus. If you think about it, and you think about it, putting it again onto yourself. If you're going to try to come up with the most core part of yourself that you can actually even think about, right? Because sometimes there are parts of ourselves we can't even think about. But like the, the first place where we can maybe start to get some inkling of definition of ourselves, who I am, at the deepest root of who I am, are my deepest, most core desires. You can say, um, my more... Nefesh Bahamas level, that would be my desires of feeling loved and accepted. Desires to have a home. You know, desires to be myself. And all the things that I do can be traced back to these desires. Right, and ultimately those things are the the scariest to share. Like those are the things, your deepest wishes and desires are not something that you share with a stranger, you, you know, you're, you only share that with the, the people you're the most vulnerable, but the, the people you trust most, even though it could seem so like cliche, it's a lot like everybody ultimately right. has the same desires, but still like you wouldn't share your, right. your innermost wishes and desires with just anybody. Right. And the way that desire expresses itself is through um, your will. So what you have the desire for, you then develop a will for. And the way like you kind of figure out like what what are these what are my deepest core what is my deepest core desire and will is you start to think about you know what are the things that life would not be worth living for without without them right and and you know it's not necessarily the most pleasant thought to think about but but that's where you start targeting like oh these are the things that are that make me be me and and make my life be mean something right now, on a soul level, my neshama's core essential will and desire is to unite with God. Those two, where did it come from? My soul is actually, there's levels of the soul. The deepest core of my soul is really one with God. And it's only through my being, you know, being created as a, as being created as a soul, and then going down to a body that I've become separate from God. And my desire is to reunite with my source, with the, which is Hashem. Now, where does this desire come from? Why does my soul want to be reunited with its with its creator? It's because, like we said before, its source being God, its source has a desire to unite with it. So my desire to unite with Hashem and Hashem's desire to, um, to connect with creation 
is really one and the same. They come from the same place because my soul comes from comes from God, right? So this is this is a, a little bit like of a deep concept, right? My soul is coming from God and its source. That means that its essential, most essential, deepest will is to reunite with God, because the reason God even created it because is because God's will is to unite with the soul. Like God only went to all the trouble of creating this world and creating exactly. souls to ultimately be able to connect and unite with those souls. And therefore that is my soul's ultimate desire. Exactly. Whoa. It's so like mind bending. Yes. So how do we make that process happen of the unification of the soul and God? Hashem gave us through the Torah. He gave us the tools to connect. He said, this is what I want. And when I do what God wants, and I do what God's want, not just because I learned to do it in school, but because I recognize that this is actually my soul's desire. I don't have to experience that this is my soul's desire, but I can recognize even with my mind that this is my soul's deepest desire. Then in that action, I am uniting with God, ultimately with God's essence, not just with an expression. And the words we say when we, the bracha we say when we say a mitzvah, is Asher Kedishanu. Kedishanu would be technically, technically usually translated as sanctified. But Kedishanu also comes from the word Kedushin. Kedushin is, is betrothal. Through the act of doing the mitzvah, I am uniting with God in marriage, like the bond of two souls coming together to become one. That is what happens when I'm doing a mitzvah. I'm bonding I'm marrying God. It's this process of reuniting my soul with its source, with its deepest, deepest desire. And it's an incredibly high level of reaching God, much, much deeper than the soul experiences from godly revelation. So in that simple act of a mitzvah, of an action, an action that's done with intention, unite with God, I'm able to reach the deepest parts of God. So now through understanding this, we're going to go back to our original Pasuk. We said the Pasuk was, when she came before the king. She, like we said, meaning the Jew, right? When she comes before the king. Melech is Hashem as he was relating to the world through Malchus, right? We said Malchus is expression. Expression is a much more external level of Godly. But when we come lifne hamelech, lifne means, it can either mean before, but lifne can also mean like before in the sense of to the higher state than hamelech, right? When the king goes lifne hamelech, when the soul gets in touch with God himself, goes past melech, past the, the king part of God and reaches God himself, right? And if you think about even in the story of Esther, what did Esther do? She didn't listen to the protocol, which was typically normal, all the, you know, the royal protocol. She went to the king himself. She went to Ahasuerus. She appealed to him as a person, right? Because from the protocol point of view, he should have had her killed. But instead, he sees her and he sees, oh, this is my wife coming to me, me, myself. And he's open to, to receiving her, right? 
But so, so like we said, when we, what happens when we approach God to God himself? So that's where, that's where we are right now. We come to Hashem, we go higher than Malchus, and we reach God himself. Now what happens? Then we come to the point of Amar Ema Sefer Yashav Machshavteh. So now we have to understand what that means. Amar Ema Sefer Yashav Machshavteh. What is the result of us coming to God himself? So in order to understand that, we're going to backtrack again. What is the ultimate purpose of creation? Like we said before, the ultimate purpose of creation is to make a dear That is God's ultimate will is to have a home on earth. Now, the way that we create the process of creating a world, a home for God is actually a lot of very much a process of what we would call sifting. Yururim, um, when God created the world, good and evil were all created sort of meshed up within each other, like mi- mixed up together. And it was hard to distinguish. It's hard to distinguish what is good and what is evil. So, it sure is. The world, <laughs> yes, exactly. Our job as, as Jews is to approach the world and to refine and separate the good from the evil. And when we separate the good from evil, we're able to then elevate the good, and hopefully the bad gets destroyed, and we're left only with only with the good. Now, if we're going to think about this, you know, again, trying to understand it, think about yourself. Within ourselves, we all have again a mixture of positive qualities, negative qualities, positive emotions, negative emotions. Positive experiences, negative experiences, etc. How can you deal with the positive and negative that's within you? When you are, let's say, this is, it's just, I'm going to give an extreme example just for the sake of understanding. Let's say a person's gone through a really intense trauma, right? While you're still within the trauma, you can't really do the work that's necessary to heal from it, right? While a person's still in a traumatized state, uh, even, you know, there are forms of therapies where, you know, people relive um, traumas in order to be able to move past them, right? If the person's still not healthy enough to do that, it's not a good idea to go there, right? Because what's going to happen? You're not able to separate and you fall right back into that negative space. It's only after you've achieved at least a certain level of separateness and healing that you're able to then go back and sort of work through all the stuff that's inside. Similar, similar examples would be, let's say, with an addict, right? You can't... Okay, so let, let's take it even like to an addiction that is... <sighs> to something that may not actually be classified as an addiction, but I think a lot of us experience it as an addiction, say technology, right? So like, I think um, technology, when... There, will, will we say there is no possible way to use technology for good? Of course not. Of course not, right? The question is, at what point, at one point am I able to judge what are the good parts of technology and what are the bad parts of technology? If I'm in the state where I am constantly glued to my phone and it's you know distracting me constantly and it's taken over my life, am I able to judge, oh, at this moment I'm using it positively? 
not, Definitely not, not, not. really true, right? So first, before I can start to deal with this, before I can start to deal with this in a positive way, I need to remove myself from it completely. Then once I'm removed from it, I'm able to highlight what's positive, what's negative, and hopefully utilize the positive, right? Right. So similarly, when it comes to us doing a bureau on the world, doing a rectification on the world, in our natural states, we too are mixed up of good and bad. And therefore, in the good and bad, we're not able, when we're in the good and bad and we're mixed up good and bad ourselves, we can't really recognize what's positive and what's negative in the world. So this is why the first step is to to come before the king. What does that mean? Reach into a part of myself that is beyond the good and the bad. First access my soul. Get in touch with my soul. My soul, which is just pure, right? Once I get in touch with my soul, once I access that rutten of Hashem, and I say, and I recognize ultimately what I want is to serve God. I go to that space, that space of rutten. Then I'm able to come back, look at the world, and start to create the distinctions between good and bad, right? So that's a necessary step before I can start distinguishing between good and bad. Now, what's the process of distinguishing between good and bad? The process actually begins with defining, with creating a definition. Because again, when you're just looking at it at face value, sometimes things are very murky, right? What's positive, what's negative? So it requires an actual process of like distinction. I have to have like a real recognition of this is positive or this is negative. And this process is happens in the realm of machshava, in the realm of your mind, right? Where does a where does a burr happen? It happens in your mind, even just like on a very basic level, right? Let's say with eating. If I'm choosing to eat a meal for God, that's gonna have to happen in my in my mind. That means I'm going to have to have at least a moment of mindfulness before I start eating and say, you know, I'm eating for the sake of God. That means that I'm not eating for, you know, purely for the sake of pleasure. It means that once I start getting full, I probably am not going to continue to just mindlessly eat, you know, like all, all these, all these other things. So it requires like a certain level of, of mindfulness because it's in the mind that I'm able to make these distinctions. Now, this level of, of distinction is called safer. When does uh, an idea start to come into a book? What, what's the difference between an idea as it is in your mind and when you would actually like write it down in a book? Right. You, you, have, you have to really work it out and break it down into exactly. words. Into words. And, and, and that's all a process of distinction, right? You first have an idea like... There's parts of it that really make sense. And like, you know, like in, in the beginning of the creative process, it's all like just one big jumble. And then in exactly. the process of, 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 let's say, writing it down, let's say in a book, you would go through like this. Okay, this needs this. I need to develop a little bit further. This makes sense. And it's all about, nah, this is not worth including this book. This part is worth including, right? So it's all about this process of distinguishing the idea within itself and, and, and coming up with a certain clarity. Right. Right. And so this level of safer is this level of distinctions and that process. Now, the same way this happens on a personal level, this also happens on a cosmic level. There's only so much that we can destroy negativity, right? 
we could get rid of it in our own lives as much as we have control over it. But the ultimate, that, that, that ultimately lies in Hashem's hands, right? So part of our job is to recognize the bad, and then through arts recognizing the bad, then God can get rid of it. But similarly, like God created the world with all this negative and positive, and he allows the negative forces to exist and have a certain level of control. That's why bad things happen, right? Bad things happen because there is this klipa, there are these, ne- there are true, actual, it sounds, it sounds like um, esoteric, but it's, it's, it's true that, you know, there, there is, there are forces of negativity. Now, the interesting thing is, even from like a godly perspective, when Hashem created the klipa, a lot of the times the way the klipa works is that it basically just like steals energy. It like siphons energy. It finds like the back door and it gets energy in that way. It's like a leech, right? And when it's in the back door, it kind of is insignificant and it sort of does its own thing. That's why it's called Khina Sahurayan. It's it's the back. It's like it's getting its energy through the back door. And again, like, you know, the example the Altarabah gives here is that if you have um, dregs in wine, if it's at the bottom of the barrel, you're drinking the wine, you don't even notice that it's there, right? It's only when it gets mixed up and it starts rising to the top that you start to recognize that the bad is there. So similarly, right, it ruins your experience of the wine. Exactly. It starts ruining the experience and you're like, hey, I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to sift it, right? Mm-hmm. And discard it. So like we said before, what did we say? The second part of the passage is Amar Impa Sefer. The king says in his letters, in his books, what God does when we come to him from that place of Ratzayim again. And we tap into that place within ourselves and therefore able to achieve a certain level of distinction on our own. God responds by he too distinguishes between the good and evil. And he actually allows the evil to rise. He brings it up into prominence to the forefront. Because it's only when it's brought up to the forefront that he's then going to sort of slice it away, cut it off and destroy it. And we see this in the Parham story. Haman started off as sort of a nobody. And throughout the story, he rises and rises in significance. And he wreaks more havoc and he does more bad things. And we see, what does Esther do in order to bring about his downfall? She invites him to the special party between her and the king. Now, from his perspective, this is the ultimate pinnacle of his, of his honor, right? He's being invited to the special party with the king and the queen. And so what is she doing? She's highlighting him, Right. We're making this distinction. We're highlighting him. We're putting the spotlight on him. Mm-hmm. And he's loving it because Klippa loves, is that ego. It loves, it loves when it receives its prominence. But what does that do? You know, on the, on the physical level of the story that, that um, elicits the king's suspicion and jealousy. And it's from there, only when he's raised up to that highest point, that he eventually gets basically self-destructs. Right? And he gets cut down because his evil is highlighted, right? So similarly, when we say Amar Masifer, what does it mean? That means that God highlights the negativity, all the forces of klipa that are in the world. And Yashav Machshavtai, um, he returns the negative things that they, the destruction that they want to wreak on the world, and instead he turns it back on them 
and destroys that. So this process that we're going through, this process of that this Pesach is describing is the soul reaches into its depths and connects to God himself. And from that space, again, it's able to then do serve God properly, do the true um, service of the world, starting to make the distinctions between good and bad. God responds in kind, Amar Masefer, he creates the distinctions between good and bad. And from there, bad is destroyed. And that's sort of, this is like almost like a big picture. It happens on personal level with a person and Hashem, and also like on a greater level of the general process of the world. Like what is this? This is what we're doing throughout, throughout Gullus is this process of reaching to God himself and sifting through the negativity and just waiting for God to finish the job, destroy evil forever and moving, moving on to, to a world with no negativity. Wow. No bad. Wow. That's so powerful. That like, cosmic effect of the like the internal of like the, the that's just between you and Hashem exactly the way that it can really the way that it does affect the forces of evil in the world exactly we like, we, like, <clears throat> we focus a lot on the I think like you know and sometimes it sounds like esoteric a little bit when you think about it from that from that viewpoint of like oh I'm doing something you know bigger than myself. And I think we'd like to often when we're learning, we like to focus more on like the psychological parts and like how I'm, how I'm, you know, making myself better. And like, but ultimately at a certain point, things are bigger than you, you know? Right. And, and ultimately to fix, to make our lives the best lives, we need to turn to something bigger than us. Right. Because ultimately, like, I mean, we are looking for a change in a cosmic change in the world. Like you talk about Mashiach, you talk about, you know, that, that, that is literally the wiping out the forces of evil. Like, and even to try to like imagine and, that happening, right. we can't do it. Like God needs to do it. Right. And, and if you think about it also, like, it's really the only way to fix the world. Like you look around the world right now, it's like, how do you like? How do you fix this? <laughs> yeah, it's fixable. Like, it's how, how do you fix yeah. this? Right, but it is it's because true. that's the point. Like, I'm the one who ultimately creates the change, even if it's God who needs to do it, make it happen on a final level. It's it's me through my d- desire for it and all the work that I'm doing to get there. That sort of, you know triggers God to do what he needs to. Right. I I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a very hopeful outlet. It's like, it, it, it just like, even though, you know, like every mitzvah brings Mashiach closer, like just like that kind of that map of how does a mitzvah actually bring the like big picture world Mashiach closer. Like I know how, a mitzvah helps to connect me with Hashem, but like, how does that affect right. the world, like at large? And that's from a bigger space of like the childish understanding of adding a brick to the base. I make that. Yeah, exactly. Right, which is also true, but yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's really powerful. 
Thank you so much for um, joining us for the Real Women, Real Terror Learning. Thank you, Zeldi. Thank you, Zizi. Looking forward to another week.